I think the shape is probably one of the best examples of form following function ever to exist. It looks like a beautiful swan or Brancusi sculpture. And that's what I think also captivated my young mind, but the minds of so many other people, because it looked so different. This is Design Matters with Debbie Milma. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with Lawrence Azarat about the design of the Concorde. It was part of this dream of the future, I think coming from an era where we used to think bigger. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor. Sometimes the best thing about being on the road for business travel is not being on the road at all. Sometimes hiding away and unwinding in your hotel room is what you need to really get away. That's why I love to stay at AC Hotels by Marriott. The AC guest room provides me with everything I need and nothing I don't. It has all the purposeful design details that matter most. There are plentiful outlets in convenient locations, a spacious bench for luggage storage, and an open closet for easy access. The AC guest rooms are beautiful, they're uncluttered, and they're truly comfortable, letting you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. Not so long ago, if you had a lot of money, you could fly from New York to London in about three hours. The aircraft was the Concorde, which came out of service in 2003. The Concorde failed commercially, but it lives on as an object of luxury design. In his book, Supersonic, Lawrence Azarad explores the look and feel of the iconic airplane and the history of its creation. Lawrence Azarad is also a graphic designer. His studio, Lad Design, specializes in design, art direction, and branding. And he's here to talk about his career and about the Concorde. Lawrence Azarad, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Lawrence, right out of school, you got a job as an art director at Warner Brothers Records, and you worked on the Red Hot Chili Peppers blockbuster album, Californication, which has sold over 15 million copies. And I understand you designed the cover, but you also sourced wolves for the band? We did source wolves. <laughs> Is that like the green M&M's thing? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, ostensibly, yes, exactly. How high will you jump? How far can you go? There is no level of ludicrous that is enough. But wolves? Wolves, <laughs> yes. It was a situation. It was the last single that we had done for the Chili Peppers. And there was a song called Road Tripping. And Anthony Kiedis told me that he wanted a wolf in the middle of the street because instead of us going on the road trip to his area, the wolf goes on the road trip to our area. And it kind of manifested through this scenario where I kept trying to composite the wolf in Photoshop uh, <laughs> and then kind of try to distort it so it looked uh, seamless and also make it kind of psychedelic. But he just kept saying, you know, it doesn't really look like the wolf is in the street. And so it's Los Angeles. You could get anything. And actually, the wolves that we got were wolves from Dancing with Wolves, uh, the, the, Kevin, movie. The, the movie, Kevin Costner movie. And we shot 
right in front of where the Broad Museum is now on Grand Avenue with the wolves, and we had you know wild animal control and the LAPD on site. Once the handler gives the no sudden movement speech before they bring the wolves out of the truck, you kind of freak out a little bit. You see wolves on TV, but until you see them in real life, when they're higher than your hip, they're back. So it's kind of, oh, this is more like a bear or a cougar. This is not like a dog kind of situation. So Um, he only did approve one frame of the contact sheet from the wolf because the wolf looked too happy in all of the shots. Of course. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Can't have a happy wolf. No. Lawrence, you were born in L.A., which you've said makes you somewhat of a unicorn. Why is that? L.A. is a city where people go to to live out their dreams. Everyone in Los Angeles is from a different place. But growing up in Los Angeles in the 70s, it was a really special place. And there was, in a lot of ways, Los Angeles was kind of a little bit of a small town. Lots of little small towns together. I also remember a key formative impression of design for me was the 1984 Olympics and seeing Deborah Sussman's Olympic design all over the city. and You were about 11, I think. I was 11, yeah. And I, I didn't know what design was, but I knew I liked what that was. You've said that L.A. has played a big role in who you are today. Is that because of the Olympics? Well, it, after going to college, it was home, and I, I, I wanted to come home for some reason. I, I went to college in San Francisco. I went to CCA. And at the time in the 90s, the San Francisco design community was very dense. There was a lot of huge, wonderful, super talented designers, and it just seemed like a a good idea to to come back home. And and I did, and that's where I got the job at Warner Records, and everything changed from there. Now, was it high school or college that you went to school with Leonardo DiCaprio? (laughs) That was high school. Yeah. High school. And we yeah. were we were good buddies, and we, in in art class together, and geometry class together, and uh, he was hysterical, and everybody knew he was super talented. Was he super handsome as a young man? Well, he was little, little this, as in short, or little uh, as in young. Little, little, just slight, small, you know, petite. Uh, petite yeah, um, we used to call him Little Leo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, I have run into him post-Titanic fame. And oh, post- of course you have. Grammys yeah, yeah, and all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it was a high school where there were a lot of kind of... Famous people? Famous people, yeah. Uh, David Arquette and Guy O'Siri. And it was just kind of like this unique kind of environment. Lawrence, your mom was a dental hygienist and your dad worked in the aerospace industry. Was it your dad who first gave you the scale model kit of the Concorde? No, I bought the scale model kit of the Concorde because I was I just became fascinated with it. And I think a lot of kids of the 70s saw it as something unique and different. It just looked cool. And honestly, the more I learned about it, the more fascinated I got with it. How I, old were you when you first came across this phenomenon? I, I I think seven or eight years old. I I had cousins that lived in Washington D.C. area. It, it, they, Concord would land at Dulles. It was just kind of. It was really honestly. I got to be honest, Debbie. When I was more of a graphic designer, young adult, that it was just kind of like this thing kind of started unfolding. Um, paying more attention to it, almost as like a early twenties. Um, that this this thing is really this thing is really really neat. And then you start to become aware of how cool things like David Bowie are and rock and roll and, and the glamour. And, and then the story of the Concord really kind of unfolded for me. 
You mentioned that you went to California College of the Arts. I believe that you initially went there to study illustration. I did. What made you decide to change that to design? Well, that's a really wonderful question, Debbie. Design reaches so many more people. And honestly, I think it was falling in love with the use of typography and image and picture. And at the time, there was uh, power that I feel like in the in the mid-90s, design was really coming into a new chapter for the, for the whole practice and what it meant to be a graphic designer, especially a graphic designer in San Francisco. So I was able to study with really kind of leaders of the profession, Lucille Tanazis and Martin Vineski and the idea of affecting people's lives through design in the retail environment or or through social causes, that light bulb kind of went on for me, that, that this is a much deeper reach. And yet, while you were at college, you still spent vast amounts of time tracking down Concord memorabilia. Yes, yes. <laughs> so what is the the peak number of pieces you've had over the years? Uh, there has to be... Around 1,500. It's it's hard to—my wife and I just moved, so—but unfortunately, I don't obsessively catalog it. It's—they're it's, it's they're all in cases, and it's it's somewhat of a loose collection. I know where everything is, and, and but I don't have it numbered and filed and archived, and there's no um, Google documents. With, well, you're yeah. still young. Yeah, so. we, we could do that later. <laughs> um, but my collection really revolves around— graphic ephemera. So being a graphic designer, so there's a lot of ads and ticket jackets and menus. So my my collection can pretty much easily fit into a couple of um, boxes from the container store. After you graduated, you got your first job as an art director at Warner Brothers Records. You've said that they threw you into the deep end of musical education. So why and how? Yeah, I left college and asked teachers where would be a good place to interview. It wasn't like I had a lifelong passion of wanting to work in the music industry. So you get one of the cushiest entry-level jobs in the world, (laughs) Lawrence? Okay, good for you. It it was like that scene in Almost Famous, the first time he goes backstage, and there's this kind of like revelation of um, this whole world. And there were so many great bands that were on the label at that time, everyone from Sir Mix-a-Lot to Soul Coughing, and it, it Jane's Addiction. It was it was a really kind of magical time, and as a late 20-year-old, you're able to be flown to New York to do a photo session and work with Danny Clinch. And it was it was just a wonderful um, experience. But more than just the glamour, you got to work with really wonderful artists and make an impact in culture and ideally other people's lives through album covers and, and things that mean something to people. Name your top three album covers that you've designed and then tell us why. Well... Yankee Hotel Foxtrot for Wilco, because that's just such a phenomenal record uh, musically, and it means so much to the fans. And uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Californication, that's a big blockbuster grand slam. That same idea that worldwide that this album cover has touched people's lives or is in their kind of ecosystem— and this was based on a dream that one of the band members had. Is that correct? Yes. John Frusciante had a dream. Debbie, it's important to mention that 
all these covers kind of manifest over like a year-long time. It's not just kind of like, well, here are your three covers, and this is what I think we're going to do. You're exploring multiple different directions. So with the Chili Peppers, not to get too far off track, but we were doing this one direction where they all drew blood, and then we their um, own their blood their own or? blood, and they had a nurse on the photo shoot uh, draw the blood, and then they would combine the blood as if they were blood brothers, and then we wanted a photographer who specialized in microscopic biological photography to photograph all their blood together. So I had to find someone in Los Angeles that specialized in, you know, photography of hemoglobin and things like that. That's really difficult. I actually know Harry Pierce from Pentagram did a project with blood, and it's illegal to transport blood unless you have special permits. It's incredibly difficult to work with. Yes. I did find this guy that did 3D photography of Human tissue is it was <laughs> it's amazing. I've the lost niche his yes, very job opportunities there are in this world. Com- but yeah, the pool thing really came at the end. Anthony was kind of running point on the project. He told me that John Frusciante had this dream. There was a pool, the sky was in the water, the water was in the sky. And that's really all that he said. But then we had to find the perfect pool. And this was before Google, Debbie. It's kind of hard to No street even, view. No street view, no Google Maps. So you would call uh, location companies and they would come with big legal boxes. And it ended up being a pool of the parents of some friends of mine that I was in the Boy Scouts with, which was really kind of funny. Chapters of your life banging together. All blurring, worlds colliding. Uh, and then the other record would be um, the Voyager Golden record which we'll talk about at length. Lawrence, I'm assuming you know that fans refer to Bertrand Goldberg's Marina City Towers in Chicago as the Wilco Towers. Yes. How cool is that? It's cool. It's it's neat. And I was just in Chicago earlier this year. I get a kick out of people taking pictures of that building outside from the same perspective. Or if you punch up the hashtag, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot Towers, people are capturing that angle. So iconic. You've said this about that time. The late 90s were kind of the end of that music world we didn't know. We didn't know how good we had it flying to New York for lavish photo sessions with great photographers for no-name artists. There was just so much more volume. They were putting out so many records. How different is it now working with artists on albums? Completely different, yet the fundamentals are still the same. On the artists that I work with, the relationships are deep and there's a you're in it for a long run. So when I work with Wilco still or with Esperanza Spalding, you're in it for this long kind of relationship of telling this story and, and uncovering the best way to kind of articulate what their music looks like visually. On the other hand, everything's different, Debbie. The the budgets are gone, the scale is gone the what's expected to be done for little to no money has completely changed and i think that that has manifested in a lot of spheres of design just the capacity to manipulate things digitally um, source images from pretty much anywhere the goalposts have changed a lot and people have kind of expected things a lot quicker easier and cheaper In the midst of the music industry slump, uh, you were laid off in a corporate restructuring. 
uh, rather than look for another job, you decided to start your own eponymous design firm and finished a lot of the albums that you started and have continued to grow and develop. What made you decide to start your own firm at that time? It seemed like the only thing to do. I was midstream on a record with Katie Lang, and also I was working on the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot record. The restructuring completely blindsided me. And because I was midstream on all these records, we knew layoffs were coming, but there was this kind of confidence, well, I'm in the middle of these projects. There's no way I'm going to get axed. But there was something about working in this discipline that felt like it was my calling, that I I loved doing it. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Was there ever a moment where you thought, this might not be worth it? Absolutely. How did you get through that? (sighs) Family. uh, I'm very lucky to be married to a a wonderfully supportive wife, friends. I think it's important to realize you can't do it alone. There are very a lot of depressing moments that just this is this is bigger than me. This, the, the end of the industry is bigger than me. But it's not always true, but it's been said, and I believe, and it has worked for me, that if you do stay on that bus and you do persevere with quality and integrity and hard work, it will come through on the other side. And it did. That also means you have to adapt and you have to change and you can't expect things to stay the same. And Evolve, I did. All told, you've designed records for the Beach Boys, Elvis Costello, Silver Sun Pickups, Sting, Miles Davis, so, so many more. Um, discussing records and packaging at large, you've said that music is an auditory experience, but visuals play an essential role in deepening it. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how you think visuals do that. Absolutely. It's something that I'm very passionate about now, especially now that we live in a world where the listening experience has kind of uh, narrowed into this area of streaming. Visual design is, is a key touch point for a lot of things that the music represents. And that touch point becomes a signifier socially, culturally, emotionally, for issues of politics, race, gender. So the way you dress, if you're a fan of Public Enemy or Dead Kennedys or throughout time, there's always been kind of a visual component to the the music experience. So I saw this as kind of a uh, charge to pick up and authored a program called Designing the Future of Music, which is manifesting in three things in, in, in education and initiative that we're running at the Royal College of Art and California College of the Arts, asking design students to uncover new ways to connect to music through design. Uh, I'm doing a book with Spencer Tweedy, Jeff Tweedy's son, that explores the recording studios of self-recording artists like Laurie Anderson and Mac DeMarco and Ty Seagal. And then we're curating an exhibit at the Museum of Design in Atlanta on the same subject, looking at how fashion and videos and packaging and alternative reality and the web space and this web of components lead to a deeper experience in music. And it is true. It's separate to the listening, but it's part of the listening. And people who go to a Grateful Dead show or a Wagner concert dress a certain way because it's a continuation of the experience and what it means to them culturally and, and socially. 
It seems that one of the centerpieces of your practice now is self-generated projects, one of which is your Voyager Golden Record project. So you, David Peskowitz, and Timothy Daly launched the Voyager Golden Record Project on Kickstarter. (laughs) Yes, on Kickstarter. So tell us about the Voyager Golden Record just in general for any, any listeners that might not be aware of the original, what happened, and then what made you decide to create this project on Kickstarter. Yes, it's an incredible story. It involves aliens, or extraterrestrials, I should say. That's the proper term. The Voyager Golden Record is a record that's out in space. It's 11.5 billion miles away. There are two of them. They're the only human-made objects ever to leave the solar system. And in 1977, NASA was sending off these two probes to take pictures of the planets in our solar system. We had never been close to Saturn or Jupiter or any of the moons. And Carl Sagan got together a team of thinkers and artists and historians and scientists, and he said, if there are extraterrestrials out there and if they ever come in contact with the spacecraft, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to include a message from humanity, a message from us to the extraterrestrials telling our story and who we are? So they they made a record. Ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax curated the original record. There's Bach and Beethoven on it and a spectrum of ethnic music on it. 55 human languages spoken in different greetings around the world. And then there are images encoded as data in the record, which was a really big deal in 1977. Um, There were only three companies that had the capacity to even digitize images. So this whole idea is, is, is very esoteric. There's a diagram on the cover of the case of the record. It's, it's made out of gold because that's the only material that would last out in space. And the diagram is kind of somewhat of a hieroglyphic and a instruction manual to the extraterrestrials of how to play it. That is called the Lomberg diagram. And Carl Sagan asked Jimmy Carter, uh, the president, to do this. And the the idea that they even did it, that NASA did it and said, okay, you can attach this record to our spacecraft. It's, it's, It's not science. It's not part of the mission. But what it is, is it is wonder and it is awe. And it kind of captured the imagination and interest of millions of people around the world. And I think one of the most poetic parts of the record is the fact that there's no images of war, disease, or violence on the record. It's it's this idealistic self-portrait. And so it's kind of beaming out there to others our best selfie and kind of something <laughs> for us to kind of um, look up to, an ideal self-portrait. So the record never came out on Earth. Even Carl Sagan tried to get it produced. Why? Why was there a resistance to releasing something like this? It's just esoteric. And record executives said, no one wants to listen to this. And this is just <laughs> weird. And I'll even attest, it's it's not a record that... You don't hum along. Yeah, you don't hum along. It's not dinner party music or anything like that. It's, it's a different type of thing. And my partners in the project, it was always this kind of idea, we should just put the record out. And that involved licensing all the music and and mounting the Kickstarter campaign and and going for it. Did you need Nessa's approval or the family of Carl Sagan? Yes, we did everything through all the proper channels, Sagan's widow, and getting in touch with the rest of the original committee, clearing all the rights on the record. It was a tremendous legal challenge. What made you decide to do this? It was the type of thing that we knew there was an affection for it. It was in the public's collective memory. But we just didn't know until we tried and went for it. 
Um, and we, we put it out on Kickstarter just hoping that we would make our costs to produce the record. And we ended up breaking Kickstarter's record for their um, largest selling music release in the history of the platform. Debbie, it felt like something that should be out there and should be accessible and that, and that it never was accessible. Here. Even Carl Sagan didn't have his own copy, from what I understand. That's correct. Well, they the, they had golden copies of the original record, but I don't know if they can be played on a regular record player. You asked for an original goal of $198,000 and you got $1.4 million. Yeah. Was it enough to do the project? It was enough to do the project. The project ended up being much harder than anything that we anticipated doing. Why? Why is that? It was like this endless revelation of discovery, how how smart the original idea was, how genius the original idea was. And I just kept having moments of kind of these epiphanies of like, this is so intense and cosmic and intelligent and creative. It was it was kind of like one of those treasure hunts where, you know, nobody knew where the original transparencies from the first scans were. Then we tracked someone down and then we went to JPL and then we found a better set of scans and John Lomberg's attic and, you know, these these crazy after we spent thousands of dollars scanning the original transparencies and then replacing those. And then once I laid it out in a book in the order, because the images are numbered for the sake of economy, I printed out the whole book full scale, but on the those FedEx large scale, you know, a long roll of kind of like the Torah, you know, it's just like this long <laughs> roll. Of, and I roll unrolled the whole book in one kind of continuous stream. And then I kind of was like, oh, it's in this specific order for the extraterrestrials to understand that it's like our earliest numerical systems and our our most basic forms of biology, then cell division, then a zygote, then uh, the young child, then our families. then And it's just kind of like this telescoping, like this, like, oh, it's, it's very much like the powers of 10. Mm. I've never really kind of drawn that connection, but it came from this time where people were figuring out how to explain these ideas through design. And, and I think that that's why... The Eames film, Powers of Ten, resonates with people so much. They, they see it in school. They have this vague recollection of it. And that, that's what I think Voyager was. And that's why we put it out. The record won a Grammy for Best Boxed or Limited Edition Package in 2018. Congratulations. Thank you. It's pretty extraordinary for a project that began as a Kickstarter. Were you surprised by this reaction? I was surprised by the Grammy. I was very surprised by the response from the public because, Debbie, after everything I've gone through in the music industry, I've come to learn, you know, you can't count any chickens before they hatch. You can't expect anything to happen. So the fact that the public accepted and embraced the record the way they did was it was a huge welcome surprise and, and, and very heartwarming. Um, as I, far have, as, I own two copies, by the way. Oh, good. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> um, you'll be listening to it tonight. Uh, yes, at, absolutely. At dinner. Yes. dinner music, yes, for sure. Actually, cosmic. I'm having a party on Saturday. I'll play it then. Okay, good. Um, yes, just when the howling wolves start. Um, the Grammys... Neil I'm, deGrasse Tyson gave you the Grammy, right? Neil deGrasse Tyson did give me the Grammy. That's when there was kind of like butterflies. But still, because why would they have Neil deGrasse Tyson present a Grammy category, but it got me into, well, funny hot water, haha, well, not so, you don't run fast and loose with your physics 
astrophysics with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And that year, uh, Chuck Berry had died, and Chuck Berry is on the Voyager Golden Record. So I had dedicated the Grammy to Chuck Berry, who we lost that year, but his music lives on forever. And I said, 13.5 billion miles away, floating in outer space. No, and no, no, no. Yeah, no, yeah. No, and no. I couldn't see um, Neil or anybody else. I was just I was facing the audience, but I could sense that there was like laughter, and and um, and you're kind of in this like car crash, deer yeah. in the headlights Oof. thing. But immediately, I I kind of was able to joke with it, and I turned to Neil, and I was like, I, I is that right? And there was just this plus or minus. I was off. <laughs> It was, it's 11 crazy. point plus or minus. 11.8 uh, or 13.8. Uh, yeah, 13. yeah. 8. I was off of a couple billion miles. <laughs> but when you look at the vastness of the universe, it really, you know, what's a couple of billion miles? Uh, mm-hmm. It's traveling 38,000. <laughs> he he could have let yeah, it slide. Yeah, leap year. You yeah. Know, what can you do? But, um, but that, that actually kind of loosened me up and, and got me to enjoy the moment a little bit. I loved watching the Voyager documentaries that came out uh, recently, and I was struck by the fact that I think Voyager 2 has left the solar system, and it's going to be another 40,000 years before it reaches another celestial body. Yeah, it gives you a sense, a scale, 40,000 years, until it gets to our closest celestial neighbor. Isn't that incredible? We are nothing, Debbie. We are a tiny little speck. Our galaxy is a tiny speck. And and yet we feel so much. We do. This, not my project, the original project yielded the pale blue dot speech. Right. So, which I think is one of the most beautiful statements on who we are and where we are. And considering whatever, whatever you're, if you're having a bad news day, geopolitically, socially, whatever, just punch up the pale blue dot because in all of time, in all of history, every young couple in love, every ruler, every despot, you know, Trump or King John Il, Caesar or Nero, it it's all in a blink of an eye in the history of the universe. That's not to say that it doesn't matter, but it is to say that we should consider how small the world is and how vast the universe is that we're in. And we should treat each other with um, more kindness and treat the only home that we have with a little more kindness. And that's, I'm kind of paraphrasing what the Pebble Dot speech says, but astronomy is humbling. Well, speaking of blink of an eye, last year you released the book Supersonic, the design and lifestyle of the Concord. So your childhood collection has paid off big time. Um, As far back as 2004, people writing about your amazing collection of memorabilia, the LA Times wrote at the time that you, at that point, had 700 pieces, including models, stamps, menus. Um, You said that the most interesting thing in your collection was the brochures from the 70s describing jet culture and lifestyle. But the 2004 article said that a book was forthcoming in 2005, yet it came out in 2019. Talk about that 15-year delay. Yes. Well, incredible, Debbie. You don't give up. People have told me no one wants to hear about this airplane. This topic is too niche. It doesn't make sense. No one's going to buy the book. But 
it was a weird string of events that that came to the book finally coming out. But it, there was a long period of working, not working on it. But I still always believed in the project and still kept working on it. And once it did come out, uh, the people that didn't believe in the project were proven very wrong. You got a lot of rejection along the way. About a lot this of rejection, <laughs> but I've got a lot of very warm support in the year that I've been touring. The book is more about the idea of what the airplane represents than just the airplane itself. What and, do you think it represents? Well, it represents doing things differently and ingenuity and what we can do with determination and creativity and aspiration. And it's it's not about an airplane, just like the pink knit women's march hat isn't just a hat. It's a symbol of our will to do things better. And you know, Concorde wasn't perfect. It was a very environmentally unfriendly vehicle, but it was an effort to get us to our destination quicker. And it was part of this dream of the future, I think, coming from an era where we used to think bigger and, and that we could achieve big things. And I think we're li- we, we could use a little bit more of that now and today. With the Concorde, there is the notion of total design. The experience was impeccably and obsessively designed from beginning to end. But you've said that the miracle of the Concorde is that its revolutionary, iconic design is functional. So can you describe some of the design elements on the plane and what purpose they served and how they became both iconic and highly functional at the same time? Absolutely. I think the shape is probably one of the best examples of form following function ever to exist. It looks like a beautiful swan or Brancusi sculpture, but, and that's what I think also captivated my young mind, but the minds of so many other people, because it looked so different. There's a reason why a child's paper airplane looks that way, because it, it can dart through the air so perfectly. That shape allowed it to be the only plane that could remain supersonic without the use of afterburner. Supersonic means to go faster than the speed of sound. So the Concorde flew at 1,350 miles an hour, 1,300 miles an hour, which is faster than the rotation of the Earth itself, so you could get to your destination before you left. The fastest transatlantic crossing was just seven minutes shy of three hours. And at the museum, they have the first plane to cross the Atlantic, the Spirit of St. Louis. It took 33 and a half hours. So to see this idea of progress that... We can do it better. So that's why it had that needle nose. Um, And funnily enough, it was was a pre-digital era, and the nose would quite famously droop down because it was an era before computer-guided landing and and computer screens. So the Concorde came into landing at such a steep pitch that the pilots couldn't see the runway over the pointy nose, so they would lower the nose um, so they could actually see the landing. So that movable nose was was kind of a signature feature. Um, the outside of the plane was this mirror shined white, and it wasn't an aesthetic decision, although it was also exceptionally beautiful. But the plane at that speed and at that altitude created so much heat and friction that any other paint scheme would get too hot. 
but it was it was all of these factors coming together to kind of create this this beautiful signature and and without getting too much into the aerodynamics that that was also why the the wing was shaped like this delta triangle because at that speed the the wings needed to be swept back so it could really cut through the air there are some really legendary Concorde stories. Queen Elizabeth celebrated her birthday on board. Phil Collins flew the Concorde between New York and London to play massive shows in both cities on the same day. Is it true that Maya Angelou said when you're there, you smile differently? Yes. She said it was a somewhat of a social circumstance and that you're up there with Concorders, and you're a concorder, and you smile at each other more frequently, more or less. That's what she she said. It became somewhat of a social circumstance that was a special kind of club. There's a two-edged sword to that. It It's fancy and remarkable that you're up there with all these super special people. But at the same time, I, I'm, I feel kind of funny about that part of the story because... The idea it's of, classist and elitist? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Let's just say exactly. it. Exactly. And it was this big, expensive, fast plane for rich people, but that wasn't the intention from the beginning. And what was the intention? That we would all be flying supersonically. And that's a big part of the story that I think not a lot of people know, um, that it was it was the next logical step, that we, we had propeller airplanes and jet airplanes. Of course, we were going to be flying supersonically. There was a kind of a cocktail of problems that led to it not being widespread usage. But all the airlines had orders for supersonic. Uh, TWA, American, United, it wasn't going to be a big deal. There was the advent of the fuel crisis. I mean, supersonics really came into idea not long after World War II. This was a time when people had, like, cigarettes for breakfast. We weren't thinking about drinking fuel like nobody's tomorrow. There were geopolitical challenges um, that, you know, the United States was making our own supersonic that was going to be bigger and faster. And then there was the noise issues. And the next generation of supersonic engineers are still grappling with how can we reduce the impact of the sonic boom so it doesn't disturb people on the ground. So once... The noise became a considerable factor. Then that eliminated the need for we couldn't fly Concorde over the land supersonically. So immediately, most of the airlines dropped their orders. And it went from hundreds of Concords to now just 14. And the Concorde was built by a cooperation between Britain and France. Uh, so the two state airlines, Air France and British Airways, they got seven apiece and that's when they decide, well, we'll just make it super fabulous and super fast. And, and that's when they turn to design. And that's when you kind of had this life of luxury in the skies. But it originally was going to be this extension of the stream of the future. You used miles to travel on your one trip on the Concorde. Tell us about that. Well, who knew you can use miles? Yeah, well, they the were part of the uh, British Airways. Some miles. Uh it was my 30th birthday, and they had announced the end. And Concord was always like, someday you're going to go. But now it was kind of like, now you or another, don't yeah. be a jerk. you gotta, you got to do it. And um, it, it just, it was kind of like 
this is going to sound weird, but you know, you dream about something for so long and this experience, you know, graduation, a, a wedding or something like it, it was just this is it. You you walk onto the plane and you just kind of have this. And in a lot of ways, it was just like being on an airplane. But at the same time, the it was a very exceptional experience. Uh, and you fly at twice the altitude at 60,000 feet. So the sky is black. You're, you're at the edge of the troposphere. So you can see the curvature of the earth. And you can actually really notice the earth moving below you. And I had flown from JFK to, to Heathrow. And it was my birthday. And it was, it was the 9 a.m. flight. And then three hours later, it was... Five o'clock in in the evening, but I was still in Pacific time. It was all just over before it began, but it was pretty great. It lived up to your expectations? Absolutely. I know that Andy Warhol stole the cutlery that was designed by Raymond Lowy every time he flew to Europe on the Concorde and enthusiastically encouraged others to do the same. Did you steal anything? There was I, I brought a duffel bag um, <laughs> of of I was primed to steal ready to go. Um, just taking the experience was gonna be good. It was also like That's you're a non answer answer, but I'll, I'll live with that. Well, I I mean there was the um we have policemen waiting outside the studio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Metal detector me. There's no I in the end I just wanted to kind of enjoy it. They also ply you with a lot of champagne, mm-hmm. so you're kind of, and it was also like nine in the morning. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. oh, maybe a napkin. Ring. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes out. Yeah, Lawrence. The last thing I want to talk to you about is something you mentioned earlier. You're designing the future of music initiatives, which have taken shape at the Imperial College of London's Global Innovation Design Program and California College of the Arts Graduate Graphic Design Program. You created them to spark the development of deeper experiential connections for the music listener of today and tomorrow. So can you give us a bit of an introduction to the programs? We're going to be working with two different clients, so to speak. Sub Pop Records is going to um, jump into one, and, and we're, we're talking to some rather large concert promoters in England. And we're going to share with the students what challenges these these real companies are faced with. But it's really about framing the story of the original problem, that we are now experiencing music in a new, completely different way. The way we discover music, the way we utilize music, the way we experience and share and engage it. And our, our sense of value of the music is, is completely different. So we're asking the students to use their design skills that they're learning in other disciplines, um, how can we enrich and deepen experiences of discovery and value and experience? And it's interesting and exciting because music touches on so many different social topics. If, if you want to talk about politics or race or gender identity or, or sorrow or happiness, it, the, there's almost no river of life that music doesn't touch on. So there's so many areas for design to carry that story forward. Now, I don't know what the answer is to a deeper experience in music. If I did, I would be very rich in Silicon Valley or, or, or someplace like that. But at least we've been spending a long time looking at 
this change in relationship with music. And setting up this problem, these students can hopefully apply their skills and talents in a way that we're not necessarily thinking of. You've said that at its core, the program is about reinforcing the value of design. In what way? Just bringing visual storytelling and visual experience to a forefront of the engagement is is important. If you look at the Donald Glover, This is America video, this was an incredible form of storytelling, but it also got a lot of people in the country talking about the social and political issues that he was talking about, but also a lot of people talking about innovative filmmaking and really brilliant fashion choices that he was making and choreographic choices that he was making, that they were making, him and his directors and his whole creative team. And whenever there's an artist um, pushing the envelope in this way, the films that Janelle Monet is making, the clothing that Esperanza is wearing or the opera that she's writing, it's exciting to see people go beyond the album cover and different points of engagement and experience where people can connect to the music in a way that's not fleeting. It's or it's important to say that I'm not anti-streaming and I'm not anti-technology. Yasmin Bey, formerly known as um, Most Def, just released a record last month here in Brooklyn where the only way to hear the record was at the art gallery surrounded by the paintings that were created in conjunction with the music. And it's not anti-streaming. It's just a different type of experience. And streaming is wonderful too. And the fact that you could listen to any song, anywhere, anytime, right here in your pocket is, is a wonderful life enhancement. But because of that, our relationship with music has changed. And I'm not making a value judgment that one is better or worse, but I do say that we can enhance our relationship with the music and what the music says and the experience of the music through an explosion of creativity in these other realms. I understand that you're eyeing summer 2020 as the launch of the first two-week fellowship at CCA. Is that true? Yes. So if somebody is interested in learning more about this, where would you point them? Well, it's actually going to coincide with San Francisco Design Week. So we will be doing a couple of public programs that week, a live music workshop with Spencer Tweedy, who I'm doing the Mirror Sound book with, where people are going to be making art in live time to the music that the band is playing. So that's kind of a real exercise in responsive design and in real time and dealing. And some of the most fundamental things that designers have been dealing with for 100 years, like Oscar Fischinger, um, rhythm and pattern and beat and motion. And then we're also going to have a concert from some sub-pop artists. But more information on the program will be released through CCA. Wonderful. I understand that you also dream of designing the future of Music Institute. Yes. Well, I feel like one or two weeks or even three weeks isn't enough to capture it. And as our experience with music changes and as design evolves and as technology evolves, I think if we just keep focusing our attention on this topic, it's going to reveal new opportunities and new experiences that are going to excite and enrich people's lives. I really hope so. Me too. Lawrence, my last question is a very important one. It's about the typeface as buka. I believe that you once said that this particular typeface could be your alter ego, and I'm wondering why. Well, it's 
clean and straightforward but unique at the same time. Uh, it kind of has a European feeling to it and lots of different weights. It's straightforward but also not the regular grotesque sans serif. I love that you took this question seriously. Thank you. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> what people usually say. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to answer that so thoughtfully. Lauren Zezerod, thank you so much for making so many beautiful things. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much, Debbie. You can find out more about Lawrence's work at laddesign.net. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott and Allbirds for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.